You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. All right, everybody, welcome to episode 88 of the Here for the Truth podcast. And what an absolute honor we have to host today's guest, G. Edward Griffin. He's a writer, researcher, and documentary film producer. He's dealt with such diverse subjects as archaeology and ancient earth history, the Federal Reserve System and international banking, terrorism, internal subversion, the history of taxation, the science and politics of cancer therapy, the Supreme Court, and the United Nations. His better-known works include The Creature from Jekyll Island, World Without Cancer, The Discovery of Noah's Ark, The Capitalist Conspiracy, The Grand Design, and more. He is the founder of Freedom Force International, and the creator of Red Pill University, Red Pill Expos, and Rabbit Hole Expeditions. The mission of these Red Pill and Rabbit Hole endeavors is far more serious than they may sound. It is to popularize a global coalition for the victory of individualism over collectivism and liberty over tyranny. You're speaking our language now. He's been speaking truth to power for longer than most of us have been alive He's paved the way for platforms such as ours and much of the alternative media you see today. Again, Ed, it's such an honor to have you here. Thank you for being here for the truth. Well, thank you for inviting me. And thank you for that rather impressive uh, introduction. I was thinking, (laughs) gee, did I do all of those things? You you absolutely did. And that's the impressive part, for sure. When you you get as old as I am, you have to have done something with your life, you know? (laughs) Absolutely, I agree. And, you know, most people seem to to get as old as you are, and there's not much history behind them. There's not much production. There's not, there's not much creation. And I think it's becoming more and more prevalent that that is being the case. Um, I've got to tell you, your interview with Yuri Besmanov is an interview that both of us have shared countless times. Um, and just to be able to interview the man who conducted that interview itself is a huge honor um, in, in and by itself. And I want to get to that in a second, but just briefly, I want to know, like, how did you get started in this world? What started you off on your own truth-seeking journey? What were some of the major rites of passage that really catalyzed your own transformation? Well, that's a hard question to answer because, uh, first of all, I think my, my path, my journey through all of this stuff is um, much like most people's. In other words, there were no major turns or a few few substantial ones, but most of the time there are little roadblocks thrown in your way. Mm-hmm. And you say, darn it, that's not what I wanted to do. But you don't have any options, so you go around them. And in the process of going around them, you find, oh, well, this is a better path anyway. And um, there are a few big boulders, but most of them are just little rocks you step around. And um, so that's been the story of my life. Uh, little things for the most part. Yeah. And I don't, you know, not, it isn't that God sent a, a bolt of lightning down and struck me in the head or anything like that. I was, um, when I came out of school, I came out from University of Michigan. I was like most young guys. Uh, I was interested in myself primarily. I was in a very, very materialistic, like all of us kids were. We were anxious to get out into the real world and make a lot of money and and get some flashy hardware or some cars and live in a nice home. 
marry the pretty girl, have a family and a dog and a station wagon. You know, all of the things that people did in those days and still do for the most part, that was the totality of my life, looking good and acquiring all of these, these outward uh, evidences of success, whatever that was. And it wasn't until I was working for a large insurance company in Detroit, I, not in, I was raised in Detroit, but in Los Angeles. And by this time I'm married and I've got a, a wife and a couple of kids. And I was on the corporate ladder going to the top, I thought. So everything was right on schedule, but I picked up a pamphlet. That was that one, a very small rock. I picked <laughs> up a pamphlet and uh, it was a, a critique, a very serious critique of the United Nations. And that blew my mind because I thought, this is ridiculous. I know that the United Nations is our last best hope for peace. How did I know? Because that's what they told me at the university. And those smart people knew everything. I didn't know anything, so I believed it. And the evidence seemed to be very good. So I never questioned it until I picked up this little blue pamphlet. I think it was about maybe 64 pages at the most. And it shocked me because this can't be true, I thought. But fortunately, this was another little rock. I was uh, walking through an area of downtown Los Angeles, not very far from what, where my office was, because I had a little extra time. I was waiting for an appointment, and I had about an hour to kill. And I happened to walk by the Los Angeles Public Library. Hmm. Now, I never thought when I came out of school, that I would ever go into a library again, because I thought that was where you did do penance for being students. And it was not a pleasant thing for me when I was in school. But anyway, I went into the library that day. And I went to the international uh, department where they had all these books on international affairs and history. And I went to the section where the United Nations was featured. And uh, I checked out three or four books. and. Um, they were all written by fans of the United Nations. Either they were employees or career diplomats or educators who were being paid by various grants or which were coming from the United Nations or some affiliate organization. Uh, so that was suspicious to me that there were very few, if any, books that I could see that were written from the uh, other side, the critical side. This professor that had written that small pamphlet, I thought, well, he can't be alone in the world. There must be some other idiots out there like that. But I couldn't find it. They were all very, very uh, praiseworthy of the United Nations, all very gaga over the whole thing. They were going to put an end to poverty, end to wars, end to uh, illnesses, everything. But I checked out the books and I read them and I, I had a bad feeling because by this time I had studied a little bit of, of uh, in a school, uh, one of the few things I learned it turned out to be a value. We studied a thing, something called propaganda. Mm -hmm. And um, I remembered the, you know, the basic rules of propaganda. And I was reading them in these books. I could tell I was reading them because I, I studied this stuff. I said, yeah. This is all propaganda. And it was just one, another little rock. I happened to have taken a course and I could recognize the patterns. They're all very, very clear. And so that was the first crack in the egg. And then I found a little magazine uh, called uh, The Free Man, 
was published by the Foundation for Economic Education in Irvington on Hudson, New York. And it was the first article I'd ever read in that magazine that was written from the perspective of free enterprise and laissez-faire government. I'd never read such a thing before. I, I didn't know they existed because all of the stuff I'd read in school were all in favor of collectivism, the growth of the state, the government is our, our savior, don't trust anybody but the government. And since you vote for your leaders, you know you can trust them because you voted for them. <laughs> that was the general theme. Uh, even if they're scoundrels to start with, when you vote for them, you anoint them and they become saints. And that was pretty much the idea I had. So um, anyway, to make this long story short, I started to read for the first time articles that I thought were very, very refreshing and stimulating. Uh, and it sounded like, hey, wait a minute, that sounds more realistic in terms of what I've seen with my own eyes and my own experience dealing with people than what I was reading about in the textbooks. So there was another little rock. So um, I finally came to the point, I'm taking longer to answer this silly question than I should, but- You're good, no worries. It's it's a journey and I wanted to, I want people to know it was not a, any big step at most points along the way. So then I decided I was, uh, I was getting concerned about what was going to happen to the future of mankind even. I never thought outside of myself or my family before. And all of a sudden I discovered I had a, a crusader gene. And uh, <laughs> I started to think about, well, what about the world? What about the future? What about other countries? What about other people? And um, I quit my job <laughs> so I could become a full-time crusader. Now that was a, a big rock. Oh, yeah. But, um, it was my own rock. I created it. So uh, I decided to go into a freelance uh, journalism, you might say, and I was going to produce some documentaries. I was going to give go on the lecture circuit, which I did. And then from that point, there's more little rocks after the other. First thing you know, I'm learning all along. I thought I was quite informed back in 1960 when this all started for me. But of course, now I look back on it and I realize I, I just had a little tip of the iceberg. But it was enough to get me going. Uh, so where do I end this story? I, I decided to produce a documentary on money and inflation. I never did, but I did quite a bit of research on it. One day, somebody asked me to give a speech on, on taxes. And I said, well, I don't know anything about taxes except that they're too high and I'm against them. Other than that, what can I say? But I, have, I could talk about a hidden tax. That very few people see a hidden tax. What is that? I said, well, that's what you have to find out. Well, of course, I was talking about inflation. And um, so they hired me to go give this little speech. Actually, uh, they didn't hire me. They retained me. I, I never got paid for giving speeches in those days. I was happy to do it because I was on my crusader uh, routine. Um, so anyway, at the end of the speech, somebody said, gee, that's very interesting. Uh, Ed, why don't you put that on the road? Oh. That's a good idea. Maybe I should polish that up a little bit and put it on the road, which I did. After a little preparation, I went on the road with a, a one-day seminar called uh, A Crash Course on Money. And it was pretty successful. Every place I went, we had a full house and uh, I was gaining momentum. And then one day, and I'll stop with this part of the story. And then one day at the end of one of my presentations, this very nice little old lady came up to me and she said, Mr. Griffin, 
I really appreciate what you informed us about today, and it's made me concerned about whether I'm doing the right thing with what little money I have. My dear husband passed away a few years ago, and we didn't have much in savings, but we had a, a little bit, and I've been worried about losing it or, or investing it poorly. Do you recommend that I, that I buy real estate, I get out of debt or go into debt, to go into an investment? Should I buy gold or silver? And I looked at the poor lady and I thought to myself, I haven't the foggiest idea. And she's asking me for my advice. And I'm a fraud because I do not have the foggiest idea how to answer a fundamental question like that. So I said, I forgot what I said, something very general, I suppose. She was happy with it, but I was very unhappy with it. Mm. So it was on that day I made a decision to stop giving those lectures and really learn something about the real world of markets. So I enrolled in the College for Financial Planning. I got my, my degree in financial planning. I qualified to be a financial planner. I never did, I didn't wanna be that, but I, I got the diploma just so I could learn what the real world was about and how professionals advise people when they get questions like that. So I did learn that and I discovered that most of the professionals didn't have any understanding of what I knew about, which was the nature of money, how it came into existence, how it was illegalized plunder and all those things. And I thought, my gosh, I'm sitting, I'm sitting between uh, two giant realms of information. Nobody has, or very few people have ever put them together. Maybe I should write a book about this. So that was a poor decision because <laughs> it took me seven years after that, to get all my thoughts and notes and data together. And that's when I wrote The Creature from Jekyll Island. Well, that so far has been my best-selling book. The one on cancer has been the second best. And I've had, as you know, about five others. But The Creature from Jekyll Island sort of put me on the map insofar as uh, most people in the freedom movement are concerned. Because they, they knew more about it than I did when I started out. They knew that the banks were, were not good. And they pretended to be you know, very conservative when, in fact, they were they're very uh, fraudulent in their practices and so forth. So that's how I got from there to here. And um, I just stumbled along the path and just fell wherever the, the rocks made me go. Hmm. Thank you so yeah, much for thank sharing. You. Yeah. yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I think you hit the nail on something that's important for anyone that's on this truth-seeking freedom movement is like, like you said before, it's not this one thing where you just get, you know, struck with a, with a, with a flash of lightning it takes a curious person. It takes an open mind uh, and a trust in your intuition as well. I think intuition plays a role in terms of like, okay, what's the next book? What's the next class to take? What's the next, uh, you know, podcast to watch or whatever the case may be that starts, you know, you start putting pieces of the puzzle together. And then if you have a mind that likes taking ideas from different places and synthesizing them and looking for patterns and, and, and figuring out what's going on. So, I mean, in, in my journey so far, and I'm I'm less than half your age. What I'm, I'm 42 years old right now. That's how it has been for me so far. I've just been so curious to learn more and more and more. And uh, yeah, it's it's been it's been it's been incredible so far. Well, you're uh, absolutely right. Things yeah. I think I learned. I'm just going to comment that uh, you can hardly wait to to see what you what you don't know. That's sort of how I am. All I wake up in the morning. I think, what am I going to learn today that I don't know? or thought I knew that was wrong. But it's not a bad way to live. Kind of exciting. 
what I love about your work um, is obviously this whole idea of collectivism versus the individualism versus the individual. And this is something that still seems to be lost and misunderstood by the masses. Obviously, collectivism has transformed over the years and now it's got prettier names like socialism and whatnot. But could you break us down, break for us down or for our audience on a fundamental level, what is collectivism? Sure. It's my favorite topic because I, I firmly believe after all this time that it is the key issue that divides uh, the political world. And I use the word, the word political in the broad sense, like geopolitical, ideological, political, not just partisan stuff. Who's going to get elected so they can steal more money than the other guy? Uh, that's political too. But no, people, people do, even the bad guys that we call the bad guys, many of them are highly motiv motivated to do the right thing. They think that by following the course of collectivism, that they are going to put an end to war, for example. Yeah. Get rid of that selfish streak that is in every individual and so forth. And of course, they're mistaken. They haven't thought it all the way through, but their, their motives are good. And so I think there's more harm done by people who are pursuing good goals, but pursuing it in the wrong way, than by guys who start off and say, aha, I am, uh, I am the devil. I am going to destroy the world. Yeah. Um, my Aunt Alice, who raised me, used to say, um, the road to hell mm. is paved with good intentions. Yeah. I didn't understand that at the time, but I sure have learned it in the last uh, couple of decades. People with good intentions are very dangerous if they don't know history, if they don't know human psychology, and so forth. So now, to your question, the issue that cuts to the heart of everything I was saying there is this great divide between individualism and collectivism. Most of the world, except those parts in the Middle East, where we still have theocracy. Theocracy is still very powerful uh, ideology, uh, but most of the, all of the rest of the world is either based on collectivism or just based on whatever it takes to be the, the kingpin. There are a lot of very small little countries where there's no ideology at all. It's just sort of like who, who's got the most money, who can kill off their opposition. It's like, you know, a couple of um, families in the mob fighting it out on the streets of New York to see who's going to dominate. So there's no ideology there. But in most of the, well, all of the rest of the world, the, the major so-called civilized countries, their ideology plays a very critical role. And one of the things you learn in school is that you have to choose between individualism and collectivism. Now, they don't use those names, but they talk a lot about those concepts. So what are these concepts? All right. The whole battle of idea is to determine what is the center of society? Is it an individual or each individual, or is it the collective or the group as a whole? Does the group have rights over those of individuals? Or does an individual have rights that arise above the group and so forth? And without actually phrasing it that simply, that still is the basic argument that you have to deal with in most of these college courses on political science. And unfortunately, 
the answer that is written into almost all of our textbooks today is that the group is more important than the individual and that the individual has to be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number. Now, there in a nutshell is the philosophy of collectivism. All you have to do is just have a greater number and then whatever it, whatever it is that serves that greater number is the right thing to do. Well, that's a horrible thought. It sounded good to me, but when you analyze it, which very few people do, it's a horrible thought. It just means might makes right. Well, it doesn't. It, it, may, make, it may make authority, but it doesn't make right a big difference. You can have the authority and the power to uh, enslave somebody, but it's not right. You don't have the right to enslave somebody. But most people who are enslaved in the world today uh, would agree with that. But those who enslave them don't care. They've got the power to do so. So they therefore have the authority to do so. We don't think about those things. If you think about a, a lynch mob, for example, in action. This is perfect collectivism. This is democracy in action. Because there's only one vote, dissenting vote, and he's at the end of the rope. So if you really believe that the, you know, the collective collectivism is the thing to do, then this is in the best interest of the greater number in that particular analysis. And we all agree that that wouldn't be the case. So you have to say, well, wait a minute. No, there's some some conditions, some, I suppose, some conditions where maybe the majority should not do certain things. Oh, really? really? Now we're talking. What would those things be? And how would you... Uh, how would you enforce your your decisions on the majority if the if the majority disagreed with you and so forth? Those are the next round of ideas that come up. Uh, I'm digressing a little bit too much because there are a lot of little interesting uh, side paths you can take on this. But you come down to the hard fundamental fact that all of the despotisms in the in the modern world, and by that I'll say uh, starting with um, the French Revolution, and and more recent than that, French Revolution was pretty much the beginning of the idea of that um, people had rights, and that people should rule, and that leaders should follow the will of the people. Prior to that, I don't think there are none that I can think of any major forces of the state which weren't based on the simple power of military might. If you're a king, and you had more soldiers and bayonets and, and rifles than the other king, and you are the new king or you are the emperor, and they're probably with their heads cut off. Up until that time, that, that was how it is, how it was. But with the French Revolution on, a lot of scholars, all the big thinkers who were writing the books, were, became preoccupied with the idea of the people being the source of, of government power, state power. And we we all sort of have a, a gut feeling, our instinct, as you mentioned a moment earlier, you follow your instincts, that has the, the feeling of truth to it, that we know that certain things are not right and certain things are, are right, so we should follow our instincts. And uh, so we come to the idea that uh, there maybe might be an argument for individualism, individuals being the center of society, not the group, for one of the reasons I just mentioned. Now, this opens up a big can of worms. 
Um, let's say, for example, that what is you can okay. Let me cut to the chase. I used to hang out at the communist bookstore in Los Angeles back in the early 1960s. I had to tell you, I wasn't hanging out there to be recruited. I was hanging out there to get educated. I was curious about these guys. I had heard that they were taking over the world. I was convinced they were. They had taken over Russia, then they'd taken over China, and they took over Cuba. And I thought, my God, they're getting close to home. Who are these guys? And I didn't like the fact that they were murdering millions of people once they came to power. Anybody who disagreed or supported the uh, capitalist bourgeoisie or whatever they had these fancy names for, any any opposition, religious leaders were all rounded up and, and slaughtered. I thought, well, what is this? What is this idea, this thought that uh, made that seem like a good idea to murder millions of people? And I, I found out that the, it was the idea that I just mentioned, the greater good of the greater number. You could you could slaughter a million people or five million people if you could claim that it it really was for the benefit of the of the remaining twenty million people. You know, it's just a question of numbers, and uh, I said this didn't sound right by instinct. So I I started to hang out at the the People's Bookshop it was called mm. down on Larchmont Street, and mm. uh, of course they tried to recruit me. They didn't know that I was just there to learn about. They might have. I mean, had I had a different mindset. They could have because people do get, they fall for the slogans, you know, like um, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Now that sounds pretty good. Who could argue with that? That's the basis of, of Christian charity, right? So it sounds good. Now the slogan, you know, we are against racism, a war, and exploitation. And who's, who's not against those things? Because <laughs> uh, they don't tell you that once you, once they come to power, there's more racism. And, more exploitation and more murder and death may not be called war, but it, whatever it is, millions of people die. But that's beside the point. So I went in, I started reading their stuff, and uh, I discovered an interesting thing that that uh, well, first of all, I have to tell you, I studied it very carefully. Yeah. Um, I bought all the collected works of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin and uh, studied them very intensely. And I got to the point where I really knew more about these authors. You know, Marx, Karl Marx was sort of a small player in all this. He's better known. His books, uh, Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto, were sort of pace setters. But uh, the real works, the real essence of communism is to be found in the works of Lenin. And as one of the things I learned, as you might, your listeners might find this interesting, one of the things I learned from that phase was that when people say they're Marxist, that's not enough to understand where they come from. You find two classes of people. One say they're Marxists, and others claim to be Marxist-Leninists. Mm -hmm. Put the two words together, usually with a slash or a hyphen. I thought it was weird. What's the difference? Well, I found out a Marxist is a is a student, a scholarly person, uh, who has read the books of Karl Marx on uh, the uh, evils of capitalism, private ownership of property, and the wonders of collective ownership, where nobody owns anything, but it's all shared and administered by the state for the greater good of the greater number. Um, so uh, 
I'm, I'm going into too much detail on this. So I found out that this, that was pretty much the fundamental of all communism. And then I happened to, I was in another bookstore a little bit after that. And I picked up a copy of Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. And I read that. And I said, my God, this is what I just read pretty much in, in Lenin. I mean, different words and enemy was different, but the tactics, the goals, the strategies were amazingly similar. I didn't know that. So then I got curious about other forms of collectivism. And so uh, I read uh, Hitler. I, I read the transcripts of some of his speeches. They're sometimes pretty hard to find. Uh, I read the works of Mao Zedong, Mussolini, and on down the line, uh, Castro. And uh, I came to the amazing conclusion that all of them were essentially the same. They had certain principles and ideas even though communists and Nazis fought each other to the bitter death in World War II and slaughtered each other by millions, they believed the same thing. They weren't fighting over differences of opinion and what they believed. They were fighting over territory. Mm -hmm. It was all competition over who is going to be the head of the heap, not what the heap was going to look like. And once I got that idea, a big bell went off in my head. I thought, well, we're really, our enemy is not collectivism. It's all of these isms, yeah. communism, socialism, fascism, Nazism, New Dealism under FDR. I mean, we've got it. I mean, even in the world that we live in now, it's even Americanism because people are using that word in a perverted way to define the very principles, the very same principles that Lenin and Stalin and uh, Marx were writing about. And so once that became clear, I realized that to look at all of history, modern history, since the French Revolution, anyway, the world has chosen up sides on behalf of collectivism. And even though they might, may fight each other as different um, factions, they're all on the same side. The only thing on the other side in history was the American experiment. Yeah. And it fizzled out after about a hundred years. It, it it started off as a as a true uh, republic, which is another way of saying something where it's not in the interest of the best, of the, uh, not not serving the interest of the majority, but the interests of each individual majority. And you can know that they didn't use those words, but when they wrote the Constitution, you know the the amendments. 10 amendments to the constitution but the first thou shalt not meaning the state shall not not you and i shall not but the government shall not do certain things the government represented the majority so they were really saying the majority will rule except the majority shall not deny an individual the right to freedom of religion to work right to bear arms privacy you know, all of these things. The whole Declaration of Independence is to preserve the rights of the individual against the collective. And when you realize that was the genius of America, when it started at least, all of that's been thrown away, of course, in the last couple of generations, where nobody appreciates what I'm talking about. They just think, look, you won the election, didn't you? You got the votes, didn't you? Okay, we win. So we, we take everything we want because the majority always rules. And the, interest of the majority. Okay. When I came up with that idea, 
then my Crusader jeans really were rattling nice and loud. And for the last uh, probably 45 or 50 years of my life, that has been my favorite topic is how individualism is really the heart of liberty and collectivism by whatever name or form it takes is at the heart of despotism and tyranny. Thank you so much for that. It's one of my favorite topics as well. Um, and ultimately, what people don't realize is that collectivism has resulted in more death and destruction on our planet than probably any other ideology that's ever existed. And I'm curious, you mentioned that obviously a lot of these people that um, come into these philosophies and exert their direction have good intentions. Like, do you think that their intentions, do you think that these ideologies are purposely being used to hijack people's intentions? Or do you think it's a natural unfolding um, of, I guess, the way that people interact with such philosophies and, and, and such ideas? Because do you think there was, was there a point where the so-called powers that be or the elites or whatever you want to call it, were like, oh, this is a great way to actually ensue our agendas and therefore we're going to repackage and repurpose these ideas to hijack the majority's intentions? Well, I think that the answer is that yes and no in both cases. Uh, mm. uh, I used to believe that uh, the whole thing was based on, on mistaken assumptions and erroneous thinking and that uh, everybody started off pursuing high ideals. Mm -hmm. But then they came into great power and money, and the temptation was to, to subvert these principles. But as I continued to walk through all of this that I'm talking about, and especially after I had a chance to sit down with some very high-level defectors like Yuri Bezmenov, who was KGB specialist, risked his life to get out of the Soviet Union to tell his story, Talking with people about that, like that at the highest levels, I discovered, no, the people at the top know better. They know it's all just propaganda yeah. to get them to power. That was one of the strong, that, in fact, that was the primary message that Lenin wrote about in all those collected works. Essay after essay after essay and on different topics, but the substance of the essays were all pretty much the same. And the substance was, Comrades, the question for us is not what we believe. Is our idea better than our opponent's idea? And all we have to do is defeat him on the debate stage? No. We don't care about winning a debate. Our goal is to win control of the state, control of society. And we must do whatever is necessary to come to power. Then after we come to power, then we are in control of the police and the military, the media, everything. And anybody who disagrees with us at this point, we can shoot them and they will no longer disagree with us. So he used to say things like, comrade, if you go into a country with a high set of values for their national uh, history, they're very nationalistic in their thinking and they have a strong culture, which, which is different from what we want. What do you do? You stand up and say, I am a communist and I'm preaching revolution and we're going to overthrow this government 
and we're going to create an international communist state. No, no, don't be stupid. What you say is, I am an anti-communist. And you mouth all of the things you know that they want to hear. Mm. And they will think that you are a wonderful person. They will follow you as their leader. And they will vote for you and promote you. So now you are in power. And now you can, that's how you come to power. So I remembered all of that when I finally came down to this issue. Now I am convinced that there are no exceptions at the top echelons of any of these movements, any of them. They understand full well that they are using propaganda and that this is a strategy to use people's uh, good intentions against them. Like my aunt Alice used to say, the road to hell is paved Hmm. with good intentions. It's a great quote. Um, Ed, you you brought up Besmanov, as did Joel before. How did that interview come about? How did you first hear about him? And how did you connect with him to make this happen? I think I read about Yuri in a a government um, report. I don't recall whether it was a House Committee on Un-American Activities or the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee. I just don't remember, but it was one of those two. And it was a you know, very obscure report, very small print, no graphics, just a government document. And I, I devoured those things at the time. And there was a lot of testimony by people who had been in the, well, in the Nazi movement and in the communist movement. And they were, they broke away because they, finally realized that they had been taken and that they were being used. I think the phrase that uh, has been used by many of those people is that these are useful idiots. I've forgotten who was supposed to have said it first, but I think they all say it since then. Anybody, they, if they can fool somebody into tearing down their opposition, if they can fool them with slogans, they're useful idiots. But, um, well, Yuri Bezmenov talked about that at great length. He said that these people, are many of them are teachers, college professors, politicians who have influence over other people. He said, they really think that they're going to be in charge after we come to power. He says, no, they are not going to be in charge. They're going to be lined up against the wall and shot. Because when they figure out the mistake they have made, they will become our enemies. We know that. So we won't allow that to happen. We will just round them up. They will be surprised because they expect to be in power. And instead, we will just shoot them. Well, that's when you hear people like that talking about, you know, they, they came from the, the center of the cesspool, so to speak. They know what it's like down there. And uh, when you hear that over and over again from various people on the inside, you stop thinking about the fact that the people at the top have just, uh, just made a mistake in their judgment. They know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, obviously, collectivism shows its face today in forms of socialism, the greater good, the great reset, etc. But one thing that I really loved and took away from Yuri's interview was the Russian or the communistic um, infiltration within Eastern spirituality as well. And them realizing that, oh, this is just a perfect framework for us to push our ideologies. And we see today the the rise and the proliferation of new age spirituality and all these ideas of, um, you know, becoming nobody ultimately. Um, but people don't, don't, don't realize that even that has been corrupted 
to an extent by these collectivistic and communistic ideas. Well, that's certainly true. Anything that destroys the existing order yeah. is useful to them, and they'll they'll support it. In many cases, they'll finance it. Yeah. Now that might that doesn't mean they really care about the objectives, but if it is in any way destructive of the present order, they'll go for it. Yeah. Um, Ed, I know we touched you touched on it a little bit before, but why is it that people think communism and fascism are on complete opposite ends of the spectrum? Well, because they fight each other for dominance. The Nazis and the communists killed each other on the battlefield. Tens of thousands, if not millions of soldiers you know, slaughtered each other, either for the, the fatherland of Germany or the, the motherland of Soviet Russia. And, but they didn't know what they were fighting for. All they know is that their government said, are you a patriot or are not you patriot? Are you a patriot? You put your uniform on and go shoot the other guy. That's pretty much the way all wars are fought. It, young men wind up killing other young men and they have no personal grudge against the other guy. They, in normal life, they might become very, very close friends, but they're out there killing each other because they've been told that's their patriotic duty. Yeah. It's so interesting also, like obviously um, these, the, these groups claim to be um, supporters of minorities, right? But as, as Ayn Rand said, the smallest minority on earth is the individual. Can we? Well, it's true. It's true. Yeah. And, you know, I, I struggled with that for a long time until I realized that there was a, a very satisfactory answer right in plain sight. Because I like the idea that the system should be good for the greater number. So I felt uncomfortable saying that, you know, for the greater good of the greater number was not our goal. It didn't, it didn't resonate right. Yeah. And that's fine. I realized, well, the goal is fine. But what is the greater good of the greater number? Is it collectivism? No, it's not. The greater good of the greater number, after you analyze it, is putting the individual at the center of society. If you respect an individual's rights, let's say an individual, you and I have a right to say something. Freedom of, this, freedom of speech. Let's just narrow it to one thing. If you have the right to freedom of speech and you want to say something really nasty about me, really nasty, even accuse me of some horrendous crime, whether I committed it or not, you could defame me in public uh, or you could really hurt my feelings, you know? <laughs> now, are you should you be allowed to do that? Well, the answer is you have to be allowed to do that because it's only by giving you as an individual the right to freedom of speech that anybody has a right to freedom of speech. And therefore, individualism, putting the individual ahead of, no matter how many people, another, one, another analogy, let me get, supposing the majority of the people decided that everybody over the age of 60 is too old to be productive and ought to be put to sleep and killed. Let's say you got a majority to go on that because all, they're all young guys, right? So yeah, anybody over 60, they're not productive. We got to support them. And they got these funny old ideas anyway. And so we're going to, uh, we're going to kill them. Now they get a 51% vote on that. 
and they're free to do it under the issues of collectivism or democracy. And, uh, but by saying, no, I don't care how many people are in favor of killing somebody over 60 because they're too old to be productive. If it's the whole world against that one person, that one person stands superior to the might of all of the opposition. Rights are, are cannot be taken away, even by greater numbers. If it can, then it's not a right. A right has to be permanent, incontestable under all conditions. Otherwise, it's not a right. So the, you come eventually to the answer that the greatest good of the greatest number is individualism. And does individualism and, and, and capitalism go hand in hand? You want to talk about capitalism a little bit as uh, your view of it and and what and as a nation, how we're moving further and further away from it? Or when people talk about capitalism, they're talking more about corporatism or, you know, just bureaucracy, politics, yeah, bureaucracy and politics and political relationships with corporations, et cetera. Yeah, that's why I don't like to use any other words in this discussion other than collectivism versus individualism. Gotcha. Because all of the other words have halos around them, overtones, subtones. They come with baggage. <laughs> a little baggage. To them. And uh, you, have to, you can't deal with all the baggage. But, now, but let's deal with uh, capitalism. Primarily, it's an economic concept. It has nothing to do with human rights or anything like that. It just, if you look it up in the dictionary, it just means the, the private ownership of property and the means of production. That's it. That's capitalism. That's all it is. And uh, when you think about it, the, those who own private property and the means of production are independent people. I mean, they, they can run the show. And if there's somebody that has no private property, let's say has no, no home that's his or paying rent on or something, has no property, and... What's he going to do to survive? If he loses his job, how does he pay for where he lives? He's got to live at the largesse of somebody else. And that's the way it used to be. Charity had to step in and take over. Well, charity, nobody likes charity, but at least it's it's not harmful. Uh, you can get out of out of charity if you find a job and and you know, work a little harder, maybe. So there's usually a way out. Uh, but when you have the state as the form of charity, it's not charity anymore. Mm -hmm. It's it's like you're entitled to, uh, that's your right. You don't have a right to uh, be free if you have a right to be taken care of by the state. And as long as the state takes care of you and provides your property and uh, you know that kind of thing, uh, then you are the slave of the state. You have to do what you're told. That's what this great reset is all about. And the, uh, the coming, uh, social credit system and the new banks, uh, credit, uh, cryptocurrencies. If everybody is dependent on the banks and their partners in government to determine how many cryptocurrencies you get to spend for various things like housing and food and shelter, clothing, transportation, entertainment, everything. If all of that, that's your life. And if that can be pulled away from you, the flick of a switch by a banker or a politician because they don't like what you say or what you do. And you have to conform. Otherwise, you're sleeping on the street and begging for food 
and you can't support your family, even the most hardened warrior on the battlefield who will risk his life in battle, who will charge a machine gun blazing in his direction, he will crumble under those conditions because he's all alone and he's worried about his family as well. So our enemies know that. And um, this is uh, this is why property and uh, you know and food and and the means of production are so important because without that you cannot be free. Now that gets to a whole different topic, which is property itself. I accidentally sort of wandered into that field, and I didn't intend to. But um, the truth of the matter is, that capitalism is just a word that deals primarily with who owns the property. Now it's true. Under a system of individualism, the answer is that individuals own the property. So in that sense, and I think only in that sense, there's an overlap. Now, if you want to just play with the word capitalism, you can say, okay, there are two kinds of capitalism. There's free enterprise capitalism, and there's, uh, what's the word I'd like to use? I forgot it now. But anyway, it's, it's controlled capitalism. It's monitored uh, by the state. and um, no free enterprise at all, and um, by edict. Well, that's not that's not private ownership, obviously. In order to have free enterprise capitalism, uh, you've got to have the basis of free enterprise, which is private. There's no such thing as pre free enterprise in the government. Those are diametrically opposed to each other. So anyway, every time you go around that circle, you come to the realization that capitalism as it's presently used in discussion, is not a very good word because most, most students going through school just learn that capitalism is something you have, to, you have to kill, you have to get rid of it because it's ugly, it's bad, it hurts people, it's selfish. They don't know what it is, they can't define it, but they know it's bad. So you've got these, these uh, young kids out there with their placards in front of the banks or the Federal Reserve System you know, and they, and they want to abolish the Federal Reserve or something like that. You know, they want to collapse Wall Street, and uh, and then they turn around and they vote for new new laws or advocate new laws, which um, puts more controls of the monetary system into the hands of the government. The very thing that they're fighting, they're now asking for because they don't understand the basis of these issues. So I, I could. Go on. I didn't do a very good job of covering that because I, I got an excellent job. The track. But let nope. me just go back and do one more pass at this word capitalism. It's not a good word because it means different things to different people. Yeah. Now, many people think that the only thing you have to do to be a capitalist is to have a lot of capital. That makes sense, right? Capitalists are the ones with all the money, right? Wrong. The people in the world with the most money in the world are not capitalists, they're collectivists. Just take a look at who they are. They don't want, they don't want free enterprise. They want government controls. Why? Because they control the government. It means they want control. They cannot have control in a free enterprise system. So they do not really want true capitalism. At Isn't all. that fascism? Is that fascism or am I mistaken? Well, fascism, no, you're not mistaken. Fascism is defined as a blend of private ownership and state ownership. 
with the ownership element or control in the hands of the state. Differing primarily from communism is that the control is in the hands of the state, whereas under fascism, it's in the hands of the corporation. But in the real world, there's no difference between the two. They always blend together like we have it today. I mean, we have people in the corporate world that move into government and back and forth. Take a look at the, the secretaries of the treasury. They're all bankers. Mm -hmm. So where's the difference between corporation and state? They'll move back and forth. So there again, fascism and, uh, uh, and communism, are, and, and especially uh, capitalism, are bad words. Stick with individualism versus collectivism, and you have at least some hope of finding your way through all the weeds. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's definitely a loaded word. You know, part of me feels like we need to, you know, educate to reclaim the language as well. You know, just because there's yeah. been propaganda on one side, it doesn't mean that, you know, um, we can't bring the the truth and reality back to what these words actually mean. And also capitalism, from my perspective, is as as you touched on, intrinsically linked to to the whole human rights issue as well, because without the right to property, we don't really have a right to life. If you don't have the right, you know, even think of like a as Ayn Rand um, and made 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 the analogy in a hunter gatherer situation. If you no if you no longer have the right to your food, you don't have the right to your own survival. And I think this is really what's at the crux of what people need to realize: what's really being um, brought from under the rug today. Yeah, I agree with that totally. One of the problems I had with uh, coming to grips with this issue of property mm. in the context of uh, individualism was that um, I have said in one of my principles that distinguishes the difference between collectivism and individualism is that the state can only have the power to do things that the individual have a right to do. Because if the state gets its power from the people, yeah. which we like to say it does, then the state can have no power that the people themselves do not have. So now let's take a look at the power that the state exercises. And 99% of it is if any individual were to do it, they'd be thrown in prison. And delegate a right you don't have yourself. Yeah. So that, and with the property issue, it's that, okay, so Property is a human right. Why is it a human right? We know that the right to, um, to defend yourself, to defend your life and your liberty is a human right in the sense that you can, if you need to, you can kill somebody who's trying to kill you mm -hmm. or trying to enslave you. And I don't think very many people would say you were an evil person because you, you killed someone who was trying to do one of these two things. But where does property come into it? Why is that on the same level? I had trouble because I knew it was in there somewhere, but I, I realized that, all right, here's a little notebook. Okay. Now this is probably worth $2 and 50 cents in the store. If somebody stole my, my notebook, would I be justified in killing them for that? No, of course not. Of course not. What about if it was my computer? Well, no, I probably would thank them for that. But, uh, <laughs> And you can go up the line. What if it's my car? Well, no, not even your car. So how far up the scale do you have to go before you can say, well, this piece of property is worth killing for, or you have a right, an innate right to defend this property uh, in that manner. And then suddenly dawned on me, well, the answer is 
a piece of property that is necessary for your life and liberty. Because you're what you really, in other words, it could be your home. If you had to sleep out in the streets, somebody stole your home, stole it literally, uh, you could fight to the death because if you lost your home, well, theoretically at least, it could be argued in a courtroom that um, you won't live. You can't live out there, especially if you're in the cold climate and you're thrown into, into uh, penance on others coming out of the cold. And you can't live without food. You can't live in a, in a very basic society without the ability to grow food. So you need, you need shelter and you need enough land that you could, if necessary, grow your own food to sustain yourself and your family. And beyond that, well, then it's, it's not survival property. It's, it's convenience property. I mean, all right, a little house is one thing, but a, a 20, a 20 bathroom resort is not, you know, that's something else again. Hmm. Unless that notebook or computer contained the only means to you providing an income for yourself, which necessitated that's your survival. something else again. <laughs> then it's, then it's not just a computer anymore. Yeah. It's um, your defense of life and liberty. Yeah. And once that fell into place, I said, okay, that's it. Now we understand it. Now, drawing the line, where the line you know, is, might be very difficult in some cases, but that's what we have courts for, is to adjudicate those gray areas. Yeah. Like, so from, from, from my perspective, People have been um, so subdued. They've been made so passive. They've um, been made to be so reliant and dependent on systems and governments that they no longer value producing for themselves the same way they once did. They no longer value productivity and creativity because of this generational subversion that I guess Yuri touched on. And so they no longer have the same oomph um, to, to defend. Um, these basic rights and these basic principles. And from where I'm looking, they seem to be far more inclined to be like, oh yeah, each man according to his need instead of each according to his ability because essentially they don't want to be productive. They don't want to produce. They have incredibly low self-esteem and an incredibly low sense of self-worth and they don't even consider themselves capable of, of rising up, of producing for themselves, of, of being an individual. Well, you're absolutely right on that. And it's hard for me to say how much of that is cultural and how much of it is uh, biological. I tend to think it's cultural because I think almost everybody that I've ever gotten to know well anyway, that's quite a few people, has had different levels of desire to be productive. Mm. And when they're not productive in some way, they get to be very sad, yeah. very unfulfilled. I think fulfillment comes from that. But you're absolutely right. There are a lot of people that have been told that that's not a good thing and that they can't do it. They're victims, you know. Oh, I can't do this because my my parents were, well, bad people and didn't, didn't send me to college or whatever it is. And so they really have been conditioned culturally to think that they, they're deprived because they would have, they would have done better if they just had if it hadn't been somebody else's fault. Now, I don't know. I can't answer that question, except that my, my own bias is that every human being has that desire to be productive. And um, 
if you take that away from him and said and tell him that that's wrong, convince him that that's wrong. Yeah, he's a very unhappy human being. I think a lot of people who commit suicide are mm -hmm. in that position because they're they're living in a world in which their their basic desires are being frustrated, their basic needs are being denied. Yeah, especially when they've been propagandized and brainwashed to believe supporting themselves is somehow selfish, to believe that earning earning money for their own survival, for their own enjoyment, makes them makes them seen as against the crowd, right? Or or or, or against the right. collective. And so the majority right. of people are in an are in a psychological conflict with themselves, ultimately. Yeah. And they're in a bind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've read some interesting theses lately by psychiatrists mm. who have reported on this exact thing that since COVID um, came out or was announced or whatever you call it, um, and people were locked in their homes and couldn't get out and mingle with others, they'd lost this intercommunication with other people and became very despondent. And uh, they have a need to talk to people, to meet with people, be social with people. And it's all part of that same very complex and, and vague compositive drives and motives that we all have. We want to be social. Some of us want to be social more than others, yeah. uh, but we all want to be social and we all need to be productive. We all need to go to bed at night and think, hot dog, I really, I knocked it out of the ballpark today and uh, tomorrow I'm going to play and re reward myself or whatever, you know, however we deal with that. But we know that we did something good. Mm. So this great reset, this social credit system, do you think that there's anything that can stop its implementation in, I guess, the mainstream aspects of society? You mean anything that can be done to stop it? Do you think it's just coming or do you think that it can be, it can be derailed? Well, it's coming, but that doesn't mean it's going to get here. Yeah. Or it might be here. And uh, to jump to the answer to your question, hmm. It depends on how many people we can activate. I say we, because I have that obligation in my heart and soul. My mission is to activate people and bring people to realization of the need to act. Without that, no, we're dead. We're, we're ducks, dead ducks. But now there are a lot of people waking up to the need that make sure this doesn't happen. Now, I do believe that if the numbers are great enough and if the enough people within those numbers will stand up and take the lead, yes, it can be stopped. No, in fact, I'm counting on it. Yeah, me too. That, that was my, I was going to say that was my, my question to you. Like, are you more of an optimist or a pessimist when it comes to everything? I mean, you've been at this for a really long time and you've seen the cycles and you've been a crusader and, and you've seen things come and go. And so where you are now uh, in the later years of your life, do you like in your heart of hearts, are you like, we're going to win? Well, we will. Now the question is when mm -hmm. we will, there's no question in my mind. And uh, yeah, but no, that doesn't mean we're not going to be a, you don't win a battle without paying a price. Oh, yeah. Especially a war. Mm -hmm. And we're in a war. It's going to be an awful price to pay. But if we have the will and the numbers and the smarts, if we know what we're doing and not just stepping into another propaganda trap, 
So we wind up doing exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. If they don't turn our good intentions against us, which means we have to become students of this whole thing, then, uh, I mean, we're invincible. But um, if we can succumb to their favorite ploy, which is false leadership, they always know well in advance, long before we know, what's going to happen. They anticipated that there's going to be a surge of opposition against this mandated vaccine, vaccines, for example. And they, have, they plan how to deal with that. And if it's necessary, they'll back away from it. But they'll never give it up. And so, you know, if they, uh, if they want us to do something that's just the opposite, like, oh, well, we don't need the vaccines anymore. Instead, now we need, uh, we need to spray something in the air instead. So that way, nobody has to take a vaccine and everybody gets affected by it unless you have a little magic pill that we know about, <laughs> going to give you immunity. And we'll say, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Or if they, if they destroy the American dollar, which they're in the process of doing, it cannot last much longer. They're, they're inflating it a thousand times greater in the last few years than ever before in history. It, it's, they're destroying the dollar. Why? Well, because when they come out with a new uh, crypto central bank currency, which will be the the death knell for us all, we'll be grateful for it. Oh, yeah, the dollar, the stinking dollar just fell apart. We need something better than that. Well, here we have the, uh, the central bank cryptocurrency. They'll give it a name like the digital dollar or something like that. Oh, yeah, it's a good idea. We'll have, we'll have that, you know? Well, we lose if, we are, if we're stupid enough to play into their games. Anything that comes as a recommendation from the people who have created the problem we're in today is not to be trusted, everybody. Got it? If these are the guys that got us into the trouble, stop listening to them. And so, listen to people who they hate, not the people who they endorse. And, even, and they're smart enough to, to put up people to hate in such a ferocious manner that the average person, well, he's got to be a good guy. Because look how much hatred he's got. They have it all figured. We have to be ahead of that game. Who are you, who are you alluding to there, Ed? Yeah. That's I'll what, I'm, that's what I want to. That's what I want to ask. Uh, like the they, everyone says, who are they? And I know, yeah. I know, you've talked about, um, you know, the Trilateral Commission and all these other organizations, etc. Like, who are they? I mean, we have the W, well, we have, have the World a, Economic the Forum, and all these people. You can create a, a directory of their names and telephone numbers to be a very thick directory. They are collectivists. Yeah. And if you get rid of one who's in a position of authority or power and knock him over, let's say he gets embarrassed because you exposed him in a pedophilia ring or something. So he's out of business now. The guy that steps in behind him is just waiting for that to happen. And he's, he just hasn't been exposed yet. But he's the same as the one you got rid of. Unless you understand that as long as collectivism is the dominant order of of political action today, we will never, ever come out of it. That's where we get back to this issue of collectivism versus individualism. Yeah. We don't, don't win on that front. We can't win on any front. Yep. And uh, this is the reason why I think that we will win is inevitable is because these collectivist ideologies, they're self-defeating at the very roots. They don't promote life. They're anti-life. 
So I don't know how long a piece of string is, but I think at the end of the day, they have no choice but to crumble under their own foundations once enough people realize that life cannot be sustained or flourished under these conditions. Well, I think you're right. But the trouble is most people, unless we have some serious changes in the forces that now are at work, most yeah. people will not know why we are in this trouble. They don't That's realize yeah. that it was planned. It was not a mistake. Most people will say, oh, don't they know that these vaccines are harmful to people? Oh, you should write, write a letter to your congressman or call the president or let him know. So it once, you know, if they only knew why well, we could change all this and how naive that is, they know all of this at the top. The goal is not to solve a problem, but to make it worse. So that this America will be destroyed. America would be brought to her knees, begging for food and shelter, health care, housing, energy. That's mm -hmm. the next big war, energy. They start mm -hmm. turning off your air conditioner. Oh, well, that's bad enough. But turning off your whole house, you know, for six hours every day and or making you buy an electric car as opposed to a gas car and then turning off the charging stations so you can't go anywhere. You know. We have to stop this thing now. And um, we can't just think that the politicians are making mistakes when they do these things. They know exactly what they're doing. And they're doing it because yeah. they want to destroy our country and get all ideas of independence and liberty out of the hearts of Americans. So they're just worried about survival. Yeah. They just want to destroy to like, your ability to think, you know, communist propaganda is just so outrageous and ridiculous. I mean, even just a week and a half ago, Gavin Newsom was like, we are going to ban the sale of, of, of gas powered cars by 2035 or whatever the date was. And then like four days later, he's like, you can't use electricity. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't, admit, it doesn't, it's like absolutely ridiculous. Like, well, it makes perfect <laughs> sense. They're in a nutshell is exactly what's planned. They want you dependent on electric cars and then they'll cut off your electricity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's part of the plan. Yeah. It's clear. But anyone with a critical thinking mind goes, this doesn't make sense unless the point is to subvert, you know, subvert you and have you under the boot of the state, you know? That's, yeah. Yeah. The average person has got to wake up and realize that that is the plan. Yeah. These guys are not making mistakes. Yeah. I think you I think you alluded to this particular figure before, and it's something I've asked many of our guests, but I'd like to hear your perspective as well. Um, what do you think of Mr. Donald J. Trump? Well, I, I have many thoughts, pros and cons on Mr. Trump. I like what he says most of the time. But I know that how, it's easy to tell people what they want to hear. Lenin taught me all about that. Mm. Tell the people what they want to hear, he said. And then when you're in power, you can betray them. Now, I'm not saying that that's Trump, Trump, but I'm not impressed by the fact that he says a lot of things that I want to hear. I'm more impressed by what he does. And he's done some good things, you know. He, but most of the things that I'm aware of have been undone. When he did them, they received a lot of fanfare, you know, like got us out of the international trade agreement. But what did not receive the fanfare is later on he endorsed 
a new international agreement that was even worse. Mm. Nobody's listening to that part. Uh, he's saying, yeah, we ought to have freedom of choice and health care. But those were words. But what did he do? He spent, I don't know how many billions or trillions of dollars to fast track the vaccines. And so when you compare his words with his actions, especially those actions, some of the good ones that were undone later on, you come up with some big question marks. Mm. Who is he working for? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do, do you, I've asked this question before. Um, do you believe that elections are legit or that the people in power make decisions on, on who's going to take the role of president? I am firmly convinced. I was going to say I know. I don't know. But I'm firmly convinced that our elections are totally riggable. Does that mean that all elections are rigged? And I don't think it does because there have been some that I don't think were viewed as important enough. It takes a lot of resources to rig an election and then cover it up. Even more resources to cover it up than to rig it. I produced a video documentary some years ago on this topic and um, it was called Invisible Ballots. And this was before anybody ever heard of rigging elections. But even back in that day, and that was what, 20 years ago, um, we had on video a demonstration of how easy it was to rig one of these electronic voting machines. We got a, a computer programmer who said he knew how to do it. And uh, okay, will you do it on camera? And he did. Took him about 10 minutes or less. And uh, I think today it's probably even easier because they don't have, probably don't even have to open the backs of these voting machines now. They can probably just dial it in by telephone and do whatever changes they want to make. And um, yeah, they have, the, they have the technology to do that, which is the only reason, really the only good reason to go to electronic voting from their perspective. I mean, the number of errors made by clinging or hanging Chad from a vote uh, are minuscule. No way could it affect the whole election. But when they were selling this idea to the voters, all, all you saw over and over again is a picture of somebody holding up a, a vote, a, a ballot, and there was a hanging Chad on it. Well, it was hanging and just pull it off, it's finish it. But even if you tossed it out, or one or two or three of those and so forth, now they have a system where they can, they can change every vote, every one of them in an instant and don't even have to hide the chads on the floor. And none of that is visible to somebody from the other party or somebody who's not really a fan of either party. Um, you can't observe anymore. So it, to me, it's obviously, it was designed to be rigged. There's no other explanation in my mind. Now, does that mean that every election is rigged? No, but if it's important enough, like a presidential election, it's easy. I'm. Yeah, that's my opinion. Okay. okay. Wish I didn't have to say that, but I, I think it's true. Yeah, no, no, I hear you. And th thank you for offering your perspective. Um, 
Ed, when you look back on your life, and obviously Joel read your impressive resume at the beginning, like what are you most proud of? I'm really proud of you. I'm proud of this program. I'm proud of the voices that have, have appeared in the last few years that I didn't ever expect to, to hear. It means that my work has uh, done some good and it's, the ripple effect is underway. That's what makes me the most proud. Wow. You just, I did not expect that. That definitely hit me emotionally. Thank you. Thank you. I don't, I don't think this, this, um, this program, this podcast would exist without like, you hear that phrase often, like we stand on the shoulders of giants and like, you definitely are one of them, uh, in this movement and the Liberty freedom movement and, and the respect that I have for you and, and the, the tireless research and the work that you have. Just, um, thank you so much. Well, thank you. We all stand on the shoulders of someone. I certainly do. So who will stand on your shoulders? We'll see. Don't know yet, but yeah. it'll happen. That's a, that's a good point. Who who are those giants whose shoulders you stand upon and who you built your foundation upon? Some of the great masters of the past that really influenced you and your work and life. Well, I think that obviously the people I've been talking about from the enemy camp mm. have been my great teachers. Mm. I think I've learned more from the enemy and from our friends. But um, the great writers of the past, you know, when I wrote the Creed of Freedom, you know, the principles that I think a freedom movement has to be built upon, none of those ideas were original with me. I swiped them all from writers from the past. And um, I can't claim, claim credit for any of that. All I did was compile them and simplify them as best I could. Um, I learned a lot from a obscure fellow by the name of Dan Smoot, who was a former FBI agent, quit his job, started to write a newsletter called this Dan Smoot Report. I love the way the guy wrote. It was so precise in his analysis and he included his footnotes. He proved everything he said at a beginning, a middle, and an end. And uh, I tried very hard to emulate him in my writing style. Uh, I learned a lot from a fellow named Robert Welch, who most people think is a lunatic because that they don't know any better. He was the founder of the Birch Society. And I, I wrote his biography. So I got to know more about Robert Welch than, um, than he knew about himself, I think. Hmm. I, I spent a lot of time talking to his mother, to his brothers, to the secretary that was with him for so many years. They told me some stories about him that make your hair stand on it. Nothing, nothing bad, mind you, but he was a very eccentric person, but one of the most brilliant scholars I have ever met. And he graduated from college at the age of 14, for example. Well, wow. Just as a sort of a beginning on that one. So I learned a lot about history from him. And, um, it goes on. Let's see. I admired uh, Senator Goldwater uh, at a time when I was just learning about the political side of things. I remember I went to listen to a speech of his in Los Angeles, and uh, 
at the end of this speech, a uh, crowd was around him. And he said, well, I got to go. And he started down the hall. And I went up to him. I said, Senator, do you mind if you want me to carry your, your briefcase? Oh, he looked at me and said, well, sure. So, so I, I got to be <laughs> Senator Goldwater's bag man for about 20 minutes or 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, that's about it, really. And this, But I run into people like Yuri Bezmenov. Yeah. All right. yeah. There's a giant. Risk wow. his life. I mean, they would have slaughtered him in the most horrible way. It is mind-blowing. Yeah. It is mind-blowing what he what he did, what he escaped from, and the amount of pressure that he would have been under and still under those circumstances made the decisions he did. Yeah. Giants. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I recommend that interview to so many people. I know Joel mentioned at the beginning, especially people that are on the fence and have a sense of like something seems off you know, in the world and like, why are things going the way they're going? And you watch this interview from 1984, almost 40 years ago. And in so many ways, you can you almost maybe change some names around of some nations, etc, some people and it feels like that interview could have happened three years ago. Just, mm -hmm. It's so relevant, which yeah. makes sense when we talk about the enemy being collectivism. So it doesn't matter what time period you're talking about collectivism mm. is collectivism is collectivism. There you go. Ed, what can I say other than being, other than this has been such a huge honor to share this dialogue and to share this conversation with you. Um, can you please share for our audience? Cause I don't think we actually let people know what your age is right now. Well, I'm 90. Yeah. yeah. I'll be uh, 91 in uh, November. Amazing. Wow. My father just turned 92. Oh, good. Young yeah. guy. Yeah, definitely. He's still doing his thing. You know, they're in Greece yeah. right now. That's where my family's from. So yeah. Yeah. amazing. Well, it sounds, sounds like you might be a fellow Scorpio there, Ed. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm looking for the long, the long view. <laughs> it's a good feeling. In spite of what I said earlier, that we're going to win, but we just don't know when. What I meant by that is that I think the ultimate victory of individualism over collectivism is probably for sure not going to happen in my lifetime and maybe not in yours, but it will happen. And I remember when I was a young guy talking to the old fogies and they talked to me, well, Sonny, you got to realize that we're in a generational battle and it took a long time for these people to get to where they are from where they were, and you're not going to change it all in the next election. And I used to hate that. I said, of course I am. Of course I am. <laughs> Let these old guys do it their way. I'll do it my way. Well, you know where I'm going with that. Now here I'm, I'm the old fogey saying, this is a generational battle, and it's going to take probably two or three generations at least, but we can do it. Yep. And with that idea in mind, I go to bed every night with kind of a smile on my face, thinking, well, today I laid a couple of more bricks in the foundation. Mm -hmm. One step at a time. I mean, Yuri said, yeah. you know, you can ideologically subvert an, uh, a population, a citizen, a citizenry in a, in a generation. So 
why can't we reverse that in a generation? We can. You know? We can. And we're starting. We're underway. And of course, our enemy knows that. And they're not going to let us continue without getting in our way. Yeah. The, the biggest mistake that they made, which I don't think they could have controlled, was this, right? It's the internet. At the end of the day, like this to me was like a death throw for whatever agenda um, that they're trying to fulfill here. It gave birth to podcasts such as this and information sharing at a pace never before seen in history for those alternate communities. There's ways to reroute against all censorship, no matter how much they push it. For the individual who's tactile enough, it can be rerouted against. So, I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I agree with it totally. Um, they may come to the point where they want to pull the plug on the internet. I mean, that's that's what you'd think would be the first thing they would have done. But is it is it doable? I don't know. It's so obvious. It, it's doable. It's, it's doable. It's just... <laughs> um, I think. Well, I think I often think, what would I do if I were on their board of directors? If I was in that little conclave of three or five people that make these big decisions, what would I recommend? And I would recommend either one, one of two things or maybe both of them. A fake invasion from outer space with um, holographic images and sounds from the sky. Blue beam. Very, very convincing can be done now. And uh, newscasts coming on. Latest bulletin, we've got the, the United Nations is coming to our rescue. We've got to forget these national boundaries now. We have to move populations out of the cities or into certain camps and follow orders. Everybody would follow that. That would invasion from outer space. And at the same time, well, what else? I was food shortages, of course, are no food. That people get pretty desperate for that. And um, there was another one I had in mind. Would be even better. Complete catastrophe. Well, I'll think of it in a second. But you get the idea. Yeah. You get the idea. Uh, They'd love to hire you, Ed. I mean, you have, you've learned so much from all these collectivists from the past. Well, they don't I need mean, me. They've got, <laughs> they've got buildings full of advisors that uh, come up with new ideas every hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ed, what is your I guess, final message for whoever's listening right now? I get asked that question a lot. And interestingly enough, every time I get asked that question, I answer it differently. Right now, I have the urge to say something ridiculous. Go for it. Which is, be thankful that you live in this era. Because as bad things are, that is the environment that is necessary for good things to happen. Mm. I would phrase it. So it's up to us to make it good. It's a wonderful opportunity. I'm glad I'm not missing it. You're an, you're an incredible human being. That's, that's what I have to say. And I'm so grateful and thankful for your presence, for your life, for your work, and for this conversation. Well, thank you for inviting me. So. Good luck to you and uh, and be prepared to win.
That's it. Thank you, Ed. Really appreciate it. All right, gentlemen. Thank you again. Good luck. Take care. Take care. Everyone, you just listened to an amazing conversation with us and a living legend, G. Edward Griffin. He's been out there, I think, 60 plus years, dropping knowledge, fighting for truth, fighting for liberty. Uh, what an amazing human being. Uh, and we just feel so grateful to have had that experience with him. And hopefully you enjoyed the episode too. Uh, we want to let you know about this amazing offering we just put out there. It's called Friends of the Truth. It's a monthly membership platform. Um, it includes two live calls a month, one with uh, Joel and myself, where we'll be doing a live teaching on a different subject every month. And then also an, in an interactive call with one of our guest experts, a previous podcast guest. Also includes access to a, a private um, Telegram community, so you can connect with other like-minded people. We're really excited about this to create something a little bit more intimate for y'all. So uh, if this is something that interests you, head over to friendsofthetruth.co. And uh, yeah, we'd love for you to join our community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our upcoming guest experts, uh, Jaguar Hart, David Whitehead, Dr. Melissa Sell, and we'll be announcing new guest experts every single month. Um, so yeah, pretty exciting stuff. If that piques your interest, like your Asmus said, friendsofthetruth.co. Thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a the time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward in evolution to a place where we can share our confusions. Yeah, 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with confusion.